All right, take your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. We just completed a, a series in Jonah and uh, just really seeking the Lord on what we should talk about. Uh, wanted to go into a, a series, it's going to be a little lengthy, going to be several weeks at a time. Um, probably taking us to the better part of the rest of this year. Let's talk about Elijah. Everybody know about Elijah? He's kind of this towering figure in, in the history of, of Israel. Uh, he's an amazing man of God. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful story. If you would like to start reading his story, reading it over and over, kind of like we did Jonah. Uh, his story starts in 1 Kings 17 and goes all the way to 2 Kings 2. And he goes out in a blaze of glory in 2 Kings chapter 2. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody knows the story know what I'm talking about. Now, so join me in reading some of that as we, we continue to, to think through this. We're going to just, next week we'll talk about the brook, and then next week we'll talk about the widow at Zarephath. Uh, just kind of taking these stories one by one and just seeing what the Lord has for us. It's amazing to me how the Word of God has something to say to us today. I'm talking about these ancient stories, these old stories have something very relevant today. It's, it's just amazing. I've studied the Bible most of my life. I was brought up on it from, from being a little baby. And every day I see something brand new in it. I've been through this book many, many times. I've been through Elijah many, many times. Terry, you may want to turn the monitors off. I think that may be what's kicking me back here a little bit. Okay. These stories are just amazing. And every time, every time you read it, it seems like God gives you some fresh manna, some fresh words, some fresh insights, some fresh revelation, just depending on where you are and what you need, right? Now, the details we're going to talk about today are really, really important. Now, we're going to get, I'm going to put my Bible nerd hat on. We're going to talk about some history and some things like that. But this is kind of a setup for the entire story that we're going to see over the next few weeks with Elijah. All right. And by the way, Elijah lived in a very, very rough time of history. And if you'll look at some of the parallels that's happening in, in the kingdom of Israel right here and the prophet Elijah, some of these very things are happening in our world today. For sure, for sure. All right, 1 Kings 17, verse number 1. Will you stand with me for the reading of the word? 1 Kings 17, 1. Read it with me, will you please? And Elisha the Tishbite and the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Let's pray. Thank, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for our time together, Lord, as we come together and hear from your spirit, we hear from your word. Speak, speak, O Lord. Help us to hear. Thank you for this great man of God. Help us to just get what we need out of his life. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Make it bread for us. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. You may be seated, gang. Now, as far as the overall biblical story, we're entering into the period of the kings or the time of the kings. Uh, you can find many of those stories in 1 Kings and 2 Kings in your Bible. The kingdom of Israel started out with a king named Saul, who was the very first of all of the kings. Saul brings some continuity to Israel. He, some, some ways, unites the 12 tribes. Um, he starts off really, really good the first couple, two or three years, and then he goes, boom, he just tanks. We get a little bit of hint in Saul's story. Remember King Saul? The Bible says he was, a, he was the most handsome man in, in Israel, and he was head and shoulders above everybody. He was a handsome man. He was a big man. He was a strong man of the tribe of Benjamin. We get a hint with Saul from the get-go in his story that he was a keeper of the donkeys. 
<laughs> it kind of gives you a little bit of, uh, the Bible's got a funny way of saying things sometimes because you get a comparison. He's a keeper of the donkeys. David will become, be the keeper of the sheep or the shepherd. So you can't, the Bible's kind of giving you a hint about what this guy's going to turn into. Never mind. You can, you can figure that out yourself. All right. And he does actually. Then time moves forward to David, who is the second king of Israel and the greatest king that Israel has ever known. In fact, Jesus Messiah is called the son of David. David's name will forever be directly related to the throne of Jesus. David builds Israel into a nation. He makes Jerusalem the capital. He conquers Israel's enemies. He expands its borders unlike ever before in Israel's history. He brings peace and prosperity to this land. He was the shepherd of God's sheep. He was the shepherd of Israel. David is one of the most fascinating people of all of human history. Then in the United Kingdom period, it goes to David's son, the son of David and Bathsheba, called Solomon. Solomon is the third king of Israel in the United Kingdom. He's known for his wisdom. He's known for his wit. He's known for his wealth. He's mostly known for building the temple of God right there in Jerusalem. Solomon does a lot of good things. He solidifies the nation. He, is inher he inherits a treasure chest from David, and he takes that and extends its borders. Um, he was a righteous man, the scripture says, but he was very, very flawed. Uh, Solomon, we don't have time to get into his story, but his leadership will literally lay the foundation of what we will encounter with this king called Ahab. Now, after Solomon dies, his son comes to power, and he, he's, he's not a good leader at all. The kingdom splits. We call it the, the divided kingdom period. It splits into the north and the south. Ever heard that before? <laughs> the north kingdom is called Israel. As from this point on, the north kingdom is called Israel. And it's kind of confusing sometimes when you read your Bible. Sometimes Israel refers to the entire nation, both parts. Uh, most often in this period of time, it refers to the northern part. It's where the ten tribes of Israel reside. The kingdom of the north lasted about 200 years. Samaria was its capital. It had 19 kings in that 200-year period. Now think about this. It had 19 kings related to the northern kingdom. And every single one of them, it is said of them, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. How about that? Now it was the, remember the land flowing with milk and Honey, right? It's the land flowing with milk and honey. The idea is, is that Israel was a land where they would have sheep and they would have goats. That's where the milk comes in. Uh, that would be on the southern part. And it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Honey was on the northern side. They're known even today for their bees and all the pollination and all the vegetation. And if you were to look at a, a, a satellite map of Israel, you would see that the northern part of Israel is plush and green on a map and that the southern part is almost all Judean desert. It's interesting to see that. And it's interesting to see that where the most prosperity was, the people were the furthest away from God. It was the desert people who learned to live off of the land and trust God that followed him the closest. Isn't that interesting? The south were made up of two tribes, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Judah. Anybody know any famous people from the tribe of Benjamin? Anybody? King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Who else? The Apostle Paul. Remember he said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. What about the tribe of Judah? Any famous people we know from the tribe of Judah? The, 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 
the logo of the tribe of Judah is what? It's like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember that? Anybody we know from the tribe of Judah? Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, wasn't it? David, King David was from the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting to me when I think about Benjamin and Judah, that Saul and David come from those two tribes, the first two kings. Saul, the Benjamites were known for their slingshot abilities. I mean, that seems crazy to us with slingshots, but back then that was, that was like the, the, the gun of its time. It was the highest technology that they had. And the Benjamites were known as the ones who slung the sling, you know, slung the sling, I guess, can I say that like that? They were the, who threw the sling. And, and think about this. At the story of David and Goliath, who was the man who should have fought Goliath? It should have been Saul. I mean, he's the biggest, he's the strongest, he's the baddest, he's the king, and he is supposedly from the tribe of Benjamin and the most skilled with the slingshot. But God in his sovereignty raises up David, puts David in charge. David says, I, I can't take anything, but I do have this slingshot, and I know you know how to use it better than me, but I know God, I'm going to use this thing. <laughs> it's just funny how the Bible story just kind of ties these little details in. Anyway, the South lasted about 336 years. It had 20 kings and about 50-50. It it's something like, depending on how you count them, because it's hard to count. Some of them started off good and went bad. Some of them started off bad and went good. But about 50-50 were good or evil. So this is a definitely troublesome time in the history of Israel. Now, when you're reading the Bible story, think about this. You hear the, the, the names Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Hosea. And we talked about Jonah the last few weeks. They were all prophets from the north. Okay, you see this kind of map right here. You see the, the, the layout of it all. Northern Israel, 10 tribes. Southern Israel. You see you got the Philistine states right here. You got the Phoenician states right here. That's going to come into play with Jezebel. She's from this area right here. All right. You got all this stuff over here. Jordan, Moab, Ammon, all that kind of stuff over there. All right. All right. Enough on some of that history. Our story takes us to the northern kingdom. So if we know we're in the northern kingdom, what do we already know is the problem? It's got terrible leadership. It's got horrible leadership. The people are not serving God the way they should. All 19 kings were evil. Now we're going to pick up with Ahab, who is the seventh king of the north. His kingdom was established in some, somewhere around 874 to 852 B.C. is kind of the time frames we're in. Ahab reigns over the northern kingdom of Israel for 22 years. Now just an interesting artifact right here. They found this. Archaeologists found this. This is a signet ring. And you can't read Hebrew right here. But it says Ahab the king of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Because that just kind of affirms the scripture and says, hey, you know, this is not just bedtime stories for children. These are real stories that happen in human history. Ahab was a real dude. But who is Ahab? Who is it? And what did he do? Now let's back up a little bit over into chapter 16. It gives us some, some pretty uh, notorious details about his life. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Remember Asa, the king of Judah? Jehoshaphat will also be a contemporary of Ahab as well. Remember Jehoshaphat, he's one of my favorite kings in, in all the scriptures. In the 30th year of Asa, king of Judah, the south... Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now you see that word Samaria right there? 
Any Jesus stories come to mind when you hear that word Samaria? Mm-hmm. Same place. Same idea. It kind of give you a little bit of idea why there's so much hostility in Jesus' day. It all happens because of this. They set up a whole entire kingdom and a whole new idea of worship in Samaria, all right? which was contrary to what was going on in Jerusalem where God put his name. All right? Now Ahab. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Isn't that something that's, that's, that's crazy that the Bible would say something about a person like this, that this guy, out of all the kings that have ever come before him, he did worse than all of them. Hmm. In Israel, it is as bad as it's ever been. There's this downward spiral that's happened from king to king, from generation to generation. They downspiraled from this people of God to this darkness that's now upon the face of the earth and upon their kingdom. This is quite an indictment, isn't it? It's quite a charge against a man. Now, what did Ahab do to earn this sort of reputation? Verse 31. And it came to pass, as though it had been been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. And he went and worshipped and served the, the God of Baal. He served and he worshipped Baal. What in the world? So what did Ahab do? He brought in a whole other religion to his people. It, it's interesting to me. It says that he went and he served Baal and he worshipped him. Actually, in the Hebrew, the picture is this, that he served Baal and he bowed down to him. It's just interesting to me that what's going on in our day, in our world today, that all this, this movement and all this kind of thing, what's one of the things they're trying to get everybody to do? They're trying to bow. They're trying to get you to bow. Hmm. Jezebel. Good old Jezebel. Y'all heard her name before? She's one of the most notorious women in the Bible. Actually, there's two women in the Bible that really stand out that you would never want to name your children after. There's, there's this lady named Delilah who was known for her seduction. And then there's this Jezebel. You ever heard your grandma say something about somebody like that? Say, oh, she ain't nothing but a Jezebel. You ever heard that? Woof. That's, that's pretty heavy stuff. Her Phoenician name means this. It means Baal is noble or Baal is to be honored or Baal is to be worshipped. Her father is the head of the Baal religion. He is the Phoenician king. She's the princess of Baal worship. She is the, uh, the, the female priestess of Baal worship for all of the world. And the Phoenicians had a way that they wanted to take this Baal worship and push it all over the Mediterranean area. And if you know anything about the Phoenicians, they were seafaring people. They went all over the place. A very prosperous country. Jezebel, now her name is synonymous with manipulation, promiscuity, and ungodliness. We've got a lot to see with, with Jezebel as it, the story unfolds. Now this is another interesting artifact that was found Right there in Israel, this is the seal of Jezebel. This is what she would seal her letters with and stamps and all that kind of thing. There you go. All right. Now look at what, what it says about Ahab, what he did. Verse 32. 
Then he, Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So it wasn't enough for him just to adopt his wife's religion. He then built a temple structure right there in Samaria, and he put groves on all the high places to honor this god Baal. And Ahab made a wooden image. And listen to this. This is the indictment against this king again. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He's setting himself up, isn't he? Now, what's this idea about Baal? Who, who is this Baal? You, you see him come up all throughout this period of time from here on. The word Baal simply means Lord. Okay. So it was, it was the Canaanite god of nature, the, the, the sun god, the storm god. His main feature was to bring the rains. In Israel, they get the, the former and the latter rains, the spring and the fall rains. It doesn't rain much in between. It doesn't rain much in the summertime. But they get these rains that help cover the harvest periods. This religion, this myth, brought to bear that Baal was the bringer of the rain, and Baal was the one who brought prosperity, fertility, and he's considered to be, by the Canaanites, and by, by Jezebel and her people, he's considered to be the Lord of all the gods. What was Jezebel's name again? Remember that? Baal is to be worshipped. Basically, Baal is Lord. All right. Now, what made Baal worship so appealing that the people of God would pull back and, and not worship Yahweh the way that they were called to, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt? They would not worship Him, but they would be uh, 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 drawn to this idea of worshiping this other God. What, what made it so appealing? Just a couple thoughts here, and maybe we'll, we'll clarify this a little bit later. Baal worship was centered on the prosperity of the worshiper. It was all about them getting what they wanted. Baal worship put the worshiper at the center of the experience. Now get, get this. That means that in Baal worship, God was a tool for me to get what I want. Sounds like some modern day theology is kind of blowing through our land as well. God became a tool. God, it, it, this, this type of Baal worship was very sensual in nature and it had all kinds of, of, of rituals that we, we dare not even talk about in this building. But all kinds of rituals centered around human sensuality. As compared to the worship of Yahweh. See, the worship of Baal put the worshiper in the center of the experience. It was all about the worshiper. Now, the worship of Yahweh says this. You are created and called to love God. You are created to call and, and love your neighbor. So instead of the worshiper now being at the center of the experience, God is at the center of the experience. God is not here for us. In the worship of, of the Bible, what, what the Bible teaches us about the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, Scripture teaches us that we are instead here for Him. That's a big deal now. That's a big deal because it, sometimes even if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap to where it all becomes about us. We, it all becomes about the songs we like. It all becomes the kind of preaching we like. It all becomes about our comfort and all about us. You know what I'm talking about? About what I can get out of this deal. 
But I'm going to tell you, here's a a secret. In order for you to receive blessing from God, you've got to make it all about Him. Jesus said it it is our calling, it's who we are, it's what we're about, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor the way we ought to be, the way we want to be loved. So it's a big, huge difference. And Baal worship pulled them right in to selfishness. Did you see that little phrase right there in verse 31? It says, as though it had been a trivial thing, he walked in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of the north. He kind of set some of this precedence. As though it had been a trivial thing. He, 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 he didn't really give it much thought. It's just not really any big deal. He, he, he wasn't even concerned about his sin anymore. He wasn't even concerned about leading people astray or away from God. He, he said, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I'm not really concerned about the consequences. It's my life. I'll do what I want to do. He saw it as a trivial thing. And worse yet. Israel began to call wrong right and right wrong. It's a trivial thing. And what we're witnessing here in the scriptures is the degradation or the decay of a people. The decay of a nation. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. This evil that God's talking about, it's not just the... the, the, the list of sins that we may list, it, it's a really a big, big deal to God because in God's mind, it, this sin leads to all the other ones. It's the sin of idolatry. Idol worship. Idolatry is a really, really big deal. So anytime you see that, the, the phrase, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, it doesn't mean that he robbed banks and he, he beat up folks. It doesn't mean that. It means that he sanctioned idolatry right there under the nose of God. That's a really big deal to God. Kind of like it would be to, to you if, as, as a married person. Wouldn't it be a big deal if... If, if your spouse carried pictures of other people that don't need to be in this deal, wouldn't that be a big deal? It should. Idolatry is a really big deal. Remember the first two commandments? What, what were they? Remember go Exodus 20? What were the first two commandments of the top ten? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one was very related to it. It said, no graven images. No, I don't want anything that looks like a beast or a man, or I don't want anything that looks like what you think something is in heaven or something's on the earth. I don't want anything like that because it'll distort your understanding of who I am. I'm not like any of that. I created all of that, but I'm not like any of that. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Here's, here's the idea. Two, two thoughts on the before me. No other gods before me. God should be first numero uno in all of our lives. God should be worshipped as our priority. God should be set as our priority in our decisions, in our thoughts, everything that we do. Jesus said heart, soul, mind, and strength. God should be number one. No other gods before me. Here's another idea about no other gods before me. Don't bring any other gods before me. I don't want to look down into your house and see that mess. I don't want to look down upon your land and see those temples. 
I don't want to look up on your land and see those high places where y'all go and pray to these false gods. I don't want anything before me that looks like another god. But what did they end up doing? Now let me, let me ask you this. Let, let's, let's, let's kind of ratchet it down a little bit. Is America in idolatry? It's a pointed question, isn't it? Is America currently in idolatry? We have adopted the, the gods of other lands, other religions, at an unprecedented rate in our lifetime. The seeds of all that has always been here. But it's become unprecedented now. And now guess which God is in America is now standing on the outside looking in as if he was a front to the people of this nation. Is America in idolatry? Well, America was founded upon Christian principles. America's not always been Christian, not always done the Christian thing. There's no doubt about that. It's been very flawed and been very human. But there's absolutely no doubt from the time of about 1620 when the pilgrims landed in Massachusetts, when they landed there at that place called Plymouth Rock, when they landed, it was absolutely no doubt that they came to worship God and to be missionaries for the Christian faith. And they set up what's called the Mayflower Compact, and it reads like it came out of the Bible. And our, our ancestors who founded this land made covenant with the God of creation, the God of the Bible. There's no doubt about it. I, I, I could take you through the, the founding documents. I could take you through the Declaration. I could take you through the Constitution and show you where biblical principles are used to foundation the documents that our land is governed by. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. You can go read all the annals of Congress and all the things as they were trying to put together the Declaration and trying to put together the Constitution. These men feared God and kept Him at the center of our life. So it's not a real small thing when a guy by the name of Barack Hussein Obama declares over our nation as the president of our country for eight years, he says, America is not a Christian nation. That's not a small thing. Hmm. Now, he didn't make the mess. He just said, it's okay, it's not really a mess. You understand what I'm talking about? It was not a small thing. And every Christian that heard that, you, he, he made it in context. He said, we're no longer a Christian nation, that we are a nation of pluralism, which means of many religions is what it means. It's not a small thing for a leader of a country to say those kind of things and to shake it at its foundation, which was actually his job. That's what he wanted to do. Is American idolatry. My concern is that I'm afraid the church may be in idolatry. Hmm. Sin in the scriptures has a build-up effect. You know what I'm talking about? It, it has this, this build-up effect, this accumulation effect. We talked a little bit about this in Jonah. The scripture talks about sin as if it almost piles up and, and then it becomes, well, God is going to deal with it now. It, it accumulates. The scripture speaks of, of a cup. It gives us this picture to, to bring a relationship to us understanding judgment and all of that. It talks about the cup of God's wrath. 
And the, the picture, you, you, there's some scripture references right there. You can go and study some of this. The picture is, is that God has a cup. And it's like this cup, it, when, when, when we sin as a nation or even as a person, that cup gets filled. A little bit goes into that. Every time we sin, every time we disobey, every time we worship wrongly or whatever, that kind of thing. That cup gets filled. And there comes a point in time when that cup gets filled. It gets full. What happens when that cup gets full? The scripture says that God then pours the wrath that you've laid up for yourself. I've laid up for myself or nations laid up for itself. God takes that cup and he tips it. That's what we're calling this message, the tipping point. This is a tipping point in Israel's history. All of these kings have done evil in God's sight. Ahab has taken it to a whole new level. And God says, I will not tolerate it anymore. Israel, you have reached a tipping point. I've been slow to anger, but my cup now is full. You ever had your mama look at you and say, boy, I'm fed up with you. And that, that little five foot tall woman would just unleash all kinds of wrath on me. She still would today if she, she was here. <laughs> God is slow to anger, but there comes a time where he says, you pushed me too far. And he tips over the cup and severe judgment is poured out on an individual. Or maybe even on a nation as we see here. Israel has reached a tipping point. Now here's a warning. As, as we talk about Elijah, we, we, we just can't dance around these issues. America is reaching a tipping point. Anybody that knows anything about what's going on, current events, about history, about politics, anything that knows what's going on in our country, anybody that watches the news, anybody that's educated and even cares, knows that America is reaching a tipping point with God as, of, as we speak. And you and I have to be very mindful. And think about this question. How long will God continue to be patient with us? How long will we continue to make Him an unwelcome God in our houses, in our homes, in our schools, in our country, in our nations, in our gatherings, even in our churches. How long will He just stand on the outskirts and not do something about it? How long will God just stand there and just wink at the evil that's going on? And, it, and, it, and it's so before us, it's crazy. I mean, think about what's going on in our world right now today. And I'm not a doom gloomer kind of, kind of guy. I have a lot of hope because I know Jesus. But things are getting pretty dark. It's getting pretty rough. We got drag queens standing in front of cameras and lecturing us about morality. What in the world? Are you kidding me? We got lesbians and sodomites, people with all kinds of sexual perversions, championed up, up in front of us as heroes. My question is, how, how long is God going to put up with this? The hammer will fall now. Abortion on demand is uh, that's unreal. It's the worst sin of this generation, to be honest with you. The murdering of innocent babies is supposed to be in the safest place that they could be. It's seen as a right. The moral right, actually, is what they would say. It's seen as a health care choice for a mom. As, as if pregnancy is a sickness. How long, Lord? And the pulpit is accommodating and agreeing with many of these sins. I hope not where you go to church. 
but many are bowing their knee to all of this. In fact, there is, it's, it's the preacher in Atlanta who preaches at the church where Martin Luther King was. He came out just a couple weeks ago and he said that abortion is, is not the most important issue. We've got to deal with all these racial issues and all these kind of things. There's tensions going on. He said abortion is a health... It's a preacher! A preacher! At one of the largest churches in Atlanta, Georgia. He says abortion is... I will be a champion for a woman's right to choose whatever she chooses for the health care of her own body. Are you serious? How, how long, Lord? He just happened to speak out. But there's thousands... Stand with it. I'm talking about preachers. Y'all good? Y'all good? Even in this COVID-19 deal, you know, this idea churches have been shut down and censored as of late. There's all kinds of stuff on the news about churches being fined, being threatened to turn the electricity on if they keep having worship. All the while, the abortion clinics, the liquor stores are all kept open as essential businesses and churches are threatened, saying you can't worship. You can't go in that building. There's something really evil going on, guys. Believers are told to stay home under threat of arrest or fines while radical hate groups roam our streets, tear down our cities, and burn businesses and kill people. And we stand under the, the darkness of their threat with little to no consequences to what's going on with them. How long, O oh Lord, will you continue to... Hey, I, I, don't want, I want mercy... But how long? When proclaimed Marxists and socialists and communist groups hijack our politics, they hijack our sports, our corporations, our media, and they blatantly threaten to burn it all down and dismantle and disrupt and defund America. And we're called to take a knee and bow to this poisonous ideology. And if you don't, you might lose your job, you lose your credibility. If you've got any kind of political or, or, or mainstream kind of job, it's over for you if you don't bow the knee. This is what was happening in Elijah's day now. I want you to understand. All the while this evil emboldens itself. Can't you see it getting bolder? Christians and good people everywhere cowering in fear and scared to do anything. I love America. God loves America. And because God loves us, He will not continue to allow all this to happen without confronting it. And I just tell you, not as some mad preacher or somebody who just wants to say something. I tell you, we're reaching a tipping point now. Pray for America now. And if you find yourself in those situations, you better ask God to have mercy on you now. It's about to get real. I'm not a prophet, but I ain't stupid. <laughs> I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you, COVID-19, if God pours out his cup, COVID-19 will look like a birthday party. So in comes Elijah. <laughs> you thought I forgot about my story, didn't you? <laughs> in comes Elijah Elijah this 
raw, rugged man who's been living in the mountains and in the desert and off the land comes into this pristine palace of prosperity and elegance pomp and circumstance he comes into this palace walks in he's got this you, you see him he's got this camel hair jacket he got he's, he's rough he's got a beard he's got that big old beard <laughs> he's got that big leather belt on him and he just walks right into the king's palace Jezebel's name meant what Baal is to be worshiped Elijah's name. Listen to the head-on collision right here because Elijah is a head-on collision with Ahab and Israel. Elijah's name means the Lord is God. So even when he proclaims his name, because Ahab doesn't know who he is. Nobody knows who he is up to this point. He steps in on the scene of human history. He says, yes, sir, who are you? I tell you who I am. I am the Lord is God. <laughs> You've got to like this guy. Because he will be, in fact, Ahab will call him later, he will call him the troubler of Israel. Because that's the way, that's the way all these groups do. They take the people who are living right, wanting to do right, and wanting us to live according to God's law. They flip the script and they say, you're the one causing all the trouble. So the answer is to eliminate you and we can do what we very well please. That's going on too now. His name is the Lord is God. So, so here we go right here. All right, we're, we're almost done, really. Sandy did tell me this. Sandy told me. Did, did my mic follow? Sandy told me, she said, you know you're preaching a series. You don't have to do it all in one day. <laughs> Back to our verse. Back to verse number one. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, something you need to know about it is, is there, there's the law for the kings. Moses wrote it in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, when you get a king, this is what he's supposed to do. He lists out several things. He said, Deuteronomy 17. Ahab was fully accountable and should have known better. Let's pick it up in verse number 18 of Deuteronomy 17. This is what the king is supposed to do. It shall be when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest and the, the get the real copy. And I want the king to go sit down and word for word, I want him to write out his own personal Bible, word for word, copy it all. And this is why. And it shall be with him as he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in, the, in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So the king was supposed to have his own handwritten copy of the scriptures, and he was supposed to keep it with him all the time. He was supposed to read it all the time so that he would know exactly what God required of his people and of him. You see that point? That's really important. Now think about this. It says that Elijah comes and stands before Ahab. And the word of the Lord that came to Ahab was actually a Bible verse. It wasn't something just pulled out of the air. It wasn't something that Elijah had a spooky moment and he's just like, whoa, I think I'll tell the king this. It wasn't nothing like that. 
He pulled out a Bible verse out of Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. Listen to what this Bible verse says. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. So Elijah didn't just pull this out of thin air. He said, here's where it is. You should know this. Hey, I got a possible scenario. I don't know if this happened like this, but this is what came into my mind. I wanted to share it with you. Elijah comes in. The Lord is God. Ahab, go get your Bible. I mean your handwritten copy. You don't have one? So, oh, so you got it memorized. Go in your mind to Deuteronomy. Oh, oh, you don't, you don't know where that is? Let me help you. It ain't gonna rain, boy. That's what it says. You have crossed the line. And he says this. As the Lord God of Israel lives. Say that with me. As the Lord God of Israel lives. You know what? It was Ahab's problem. He forgot that God was alive. They had put God to rest. They had updated all their computers. They had updated all their religion, modernized everything. They got them a new God now. We put the old one in the closet in the back back over there somewhere. We, you can dust it off if you want to, but we, really don't, we don't really care about that one. And Elijah came and said, hey, I'm going to tell you somebody that's real important that you have absolutely forgotten. And you need to know something. He's not dead back in the back closet. He is the living God of all creation. And you are accountable to him, buddy. We all got to hear that too. God's alive. We can't keep living like he's dead. Like just because he didn't slap you in the back of the head, that don't mean he's not watching. Just because he let us get by with some things and all that. Because tell me, I, I've been there where God says, hey, buddy, the jig's up. Rug pulled out from under the feet. You're in trouble. As the Lord God lives. America needs to hear that. The people that you love and know, they need to know, hey, God's not dead. He's alive. He may be quiet, but that doesn't mean he ain't got nothing to say. As the Lord God lives... Elijah said this. He said, before whom I stand, I come as his representative. And the reason I'm standing here before you, king, is because I've been standing before him. This was the secret to the whole deal of Elijah now. This was the secret to Elijah being exactly who we know him to be, this man of power and might and courage and strength and faith. His secret was that he knew how to stand before God. That idea of stand before God is a Hebrew way of saying he knew how to pray. He knew how to worship. He knew how to get before God's presence. He knew how to honor God. He knew how to, how to seek. He knew how to ask. He knew how to knock. This man knew how to seek God. He knew how to go after God for the sake of other people. This man stood before God so he didn't have to bow before Ahab. And see, that's the secret for all of us too. We've got to learn to stand before God. We've got to learn to spend more time. This is not the season to draw back. This is not the season for you to do your own merry little thing and hope everything's going to turn out okay. Hey, this, that's not going to be the way it works now. 
This is not the season. This is the season for us to stand before our God, to intercede on behalf of our people, to intercede on behalf of our presidents and our officials and our politicians. And if we can stand before God, we'll be able to stand before anybody and not cower down. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. You know what I was going to call this message? I was going to call this message, a politician meets a prophet. Because <laughs> that's really what needs to happen. <sighs> no rain, no dew, until I say so. Your abominations have violated God. The consequences were clear. Time's up. No rain, no dew. Remember Baal? We talked about Baal. One of the chief things that they believed about Baal was that Baal controlled the rain. No rain, no dew. That's a message to Ahab that says this. And oh yeah, by the way, Baal doesn't control the rain. He doesn't control the harvest. He doesn't control the prosperity. God's going to prove to you that he's God and he's God alone. I think I'm done. The tipping point. Remember the cup? Now we talked about the cup. The cup of wrath that gets full. Maybe you're at a tipping point. Maybe God's been pulling on you saying, hey, it's time. It's time to make some changes here. It's time for you to bow the knee. It's time for us to make a turn. The cup... Go with me to a garden. And there we see a man kneeling. You pray. That man is Jesus. He's praying. And in his mind's eye, he sees a cup. And his father whispers to him and says, Son, you've got to drink this cup. What's the cup? It's that cup we were just talking about. It's that cup of wrath. That, that, that cup that had gotten full. And Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup, remember? Let this cup pass from me. And he prays this three times, it says. He says, but nevertheless, not as I will, but what you want, Lord. What was he saying? He said, I, I don't really want to drink that cup. I don't think Jesus was vacillating. I just think that he'd never known the wrath of God. He'd always been God's beloved. And he'd, he'd done everything perfectly. But Jesus steps back and he says, but I'll do it. I'll drink that cup. And here's the truth of the gospel. That Jesus chose to drink the cup of wrath for you, for me, for America. Jesus chose to drink that cup of wrath. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the wrath fell on him so that it doesn't have to fall on you. It got poured out. We can use that now. It got tipped over and poured out on Jesus so that it doesn't have to pour out on us. But beloved... 
just know this. If you don't stand with Jesus drinking the cup for you, you'll have to drink the cup yourself. That's just a fact. So today we, we, we choose. Do we want to stand in the place where Jesus is and let him take the wrath? And we humble and bow ourselves before him. Or do we stand in pride like Ahab and Jezebel, still wanting to do our own thing? And we'll drink it ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Thank you so much for your mercy and your compassion towards us. Thank you for your help, Lord. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for the stop signs you throw up along the way. And your great mercy, Lord. Save us. Forgive us. Heal us. Help us.